the book of Isaiah, chapter 3 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And uh, if you're with us tonight and you're without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. On Sunday nights, you're kind of going to need a Bible to follow along and not get lost. And so wave to them. They'll get you a Bible. And then if you don't own a Bible, God wants everyone to own and read and know his Bible. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Also, while we're kind of getting settled, let's. Uh, I just want to remind you, those of you who weren't here uh, on Sunday morning, and lots of you are here just for the Sunday evening service, um, not because they're carnal, by the way, but just for a lot of different reasons. But tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow afternoon, one o'clock, we'll have our annual uh, Labor Day water baptism and picnic. And so if you've never been water baptized, you need to do that. That's one of the things that God commands us to do. What did I say? Did I say one o'clock? It's at 12 o'clock. Well, listen, Pastor Matt said tomorrow when he was talking about Tuesday all the way through the announcements this morning. You were gracious to him, weren't you? But we wanted, I'm just kidding. 12 o'clock tomorrow. Thank you, Jonathan, for that. And we'll begin at 12 with the water baptism and then enjoy a lunch that will be provided as well. And so come on out. If you've never been water baptized, get water baptized. We'll have changing rooms for you. And then a great time of fellowship and uh, lots of the picnic, a lot of good times afterwards as well. So be aware of that. We pick things up in Chapter 3 as we've kind of just begun the book of Isaiah. And we want to remember that chapters 1 through 5 constitute uh, a single uh, prophecy of uh, Isaiah to the nation of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so it's all one kind of long, single prophecy that he makes to them. And he's kind of setting the stage for actually the entire book. And so we broke off partway through last time, and we'll look to finish the rest of it here uh, tonight. In chapter 1, he called the heavens and the earth to hear his case that he was laying out against uh, Judah because of their sin and to bear witness to uh, the uh, justification of his charges against Judah and the judgment that he was going to bring upon them. And then in chapter 2, as is common all the way through the book, it's almost as if Isaiah and the Lord behind him can only, uh, you know, stay on the bad news so long before he's got to pop into the kingdom age, the return of the Messiah, and talk about better days ahead, not only for Judah, but for the whole world. And in chapter 2, he spoke about the kingdom age of Christ coming uh, on the earth after his second coming, and then the great tribulation he spoke of that would precede uh, that uh, kingdom age. And now he comes back into the present, the time of Isaiah, and speaking out and warning against a future judgment, a warning against their sin here as we pick things up uh, in uh, chapter 3. And the Lord declared through Isaiah, For behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and uh, Judah 
the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. And so he's saying because of their sin, their country is going to be taken over. They're going to be looted so they won't even have any uh, water or any bread. The mighty man, he said, the man of war, the bravest. We're talking about the Navy SEALs here, the Marines, the best of the best, the mighty man, the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the expert enchanter. All of these, he says, uh, will be taken over and they're going to be killed or they're going to be captured in the coming uh, uh, judgment that would come upon them. And then as he continues to speak about the leaders being killed and and uh, the poverty that was going to be introduced into the land, the stripping of their uh, loot and, and uh, having their wealth looted. He then uh, goes on to say, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. It's interesting that God says concerning Judah, one of his judgments that would be upon them and that he would be actively involved in it. He said, I'm going to give you kings that are comparative babes. I'm going to cause you to elect leaders or have appointed leaders within your country, people that are so uh, childish, so immature in their life experience and in their ability to govern the nation uh, that it's going to end up, as he goes on to talk about three, resulting in anarchy and unrest within Judah. The people will be oppressed Everyone by, uh, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. So they'll have these immature leaders, the leaders that they want, the leaders that will accommodate their sin. The result will always be that it will then translate into a breakdown of social order there within uh, the nation. People will use the chaos of this weak leadership and misguided leadership uh, to then begin to oppress their uh, neighbors. And then ultimately you've got a rebellion against all authority. That then results in, in verse 6, when a man will take hold of his brother... Uh, in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. And so the, the whole progression, it would begin with this uh, immature, unqualified, inexperienced leaders. Uh, their poor decision-making would result in this kind of anarchy and rebellion, social unrest within the nation until finally the nation reached such a condition that nobody would want to rule over it, run for office or be a leader. Now, that's a, it's a terrible thing in the history of a, a nation or a period in a nation's history when those who are the most qualified and the most capable to lead in that nation are one unwilling to run for office or unwilling to hold office because they see that something's hit a tipping point within the nation, that all there are are problems, the problems are increasingly becoming unsolvable, and they look and they say, I don't want anything to do with it. And, uh, but that's, that is a place 
a real place that a nation can come to. Judah was coming to that and would come to it ultimately in their judgment. And people would be so desperate for anyone to rule over Judah that they'd look at them and say, Hey, you've got nice clothes. Why don't you be the king? <laughs> That's something. You've got a wonderful suit. Why don't you be the president? Or the head of the Senate. It has almost gotten that way, almost. Whoever looks good, doesn't matter what experience they have or what kind of skill or abilities or calling that they have to lead. Leaders require a gift of leading to lead. It's not just anybody who can win an election, can then lead effectively. And so you'll come to this place where those that actually have the gift, they have the ability, they have the life experience, they won't want anything to do with it. And they'll be looking desperately. Listen, you've got a suit. You'll look it on TV. Why don't you run? And in that day, he will protest saying, I can't cure your ills. Things have gone too far. For in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. So first God deprives them of quality leadership. Immature and inexperienced people are put in positions they're not qualified to hold. And then there's a, after a season of this, the nation becomes beset by unrest and ultimately anarchy until finally the problems within the nation are so great that no one, whether they're competent or they're incompetent, is interested in ruling. And I'll leave it to you to uh, discover or to... Uh, decide for yourself where we are as a nation in that progression. Things are very, very serious in the world that we live in. This is a absolute tinderbox that we're living in right now. And it's a time for strong leadership, great leadership, godly leadership, so that it does not descend into worldwide chaos and uh, we're looking at some of the very things that Judah was going to look at in their future. Of course, the answer to all of it, as he gets into uh, chapter 4, all of the answers to man's problems are the return of the Lord. First in the rapture of the church, and then in his second coming. And so we don't fret and we don't become anxious and worried about the condition of the world. God's going to keep his promises. But it is heartbreaking to see things that happen that are unnecessary in the sense that they don't need to lead there. But once they do go there, then God has to judge. And it's interesting the different forms that his judgment takes. He then goes on and restates the reason for Judah's judgment. For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their uh, tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. They just had turned to a place where they, all of their actions and their speaking was contrary to his word. They didn't care. They were just going to do it right in front of his eyes and, and provoke him. And the look on their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They're as proud of their sin, uh, engaging in their sins, flaunting their sin as ever Sodom was of its homosexuality. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, Isaiah said, for they have brought evil upon themselves. And that's where... Sin always has to lead. And it's important for us to realize that sin is a big deal to God. It's not a big deal to the population of the world at this time. It's not a big deal. Sin is an old-fashioned concept 
There is no true God that's behind these definitions of right and wrong and sin. It's all very passe. There's one big problem with that, and that is there is a God, and he sits on a throne, and he rules over the universe and the earth and over all of creation, and he watches the sin that's committed against him and the affront that it is to him uh, that's poking him in the eye. And one day he will be forced to rise up and judge. And always it will be, as it said in verse 9, for they have brought evil upon themselves. And then in verse 10, there's an encouragement to the righteous. Say to the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Now, one of the problems with, and we're very much in this kind of a place, we may not be as far along as Judah is, but you know, Judah's probably about... Um, you know, 140 years away from the judgment that would ultimately come on them. I don't know how far away from a similar judgment might come upon the United States or the Western world or the whole world itself. But here you have a a season very much like the one that we live in where um, it's discouraging to the righteous, the person who's living for God, the person who's obeying God's word, and you just, it's so easy to just look at it. And when there's this wickedness and dishonesties just prevailing within the nation, it's so easy for a Christian just to think, well, what good does it do to do the righteous thing? I mean, to live a righteous life in the middle of all of this unrighteousness. How can I run a business when everybody else is cheating, but I don't get to cheat? Why don't I get to do it? Just like cut the corners and, and not only related to business, but also in school and at, at work and in my private life. Why should I live a righteous life when the whole thing looks like it's going down the tubes all around me? Because we don't live a righteous life for our own benefit or our own profit supremely. We don't live that life supremely for the sake of other people. We live it because that is the life that God has called us to. They talk about sometimes in a place like this as we're worshiping the Lord or as we're serving the Lord that we live our life uh, before an audience of one. And that audience of one is the Lord himself. And so why do we live a righteous life in the midst of unrighteousness no matter how bad the righteousness gets? Because God is watching, and we do it for him, and we do it to bless him. And he's worthy of that from our lives. And God promises that when judgment does come on Judah, that he will differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. And he will give to each one according to their ways. And sometimes the righteous need to have that encouragement to know that, no, it makes a difference for me to be righteous. It makes a difference for me to stand strong and stay obedient to the Lord. And God reminds them of that, and it's an important reminder. He continues to pronounce his woes upon the wicked. Verse 11, woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women shall rule over them. O my people, those who lead you, cause you to err, and destroy the way of your paths. 
And he then pronounces woe on their ungodly leaders, basically a woe upon the men of the nation. The Lord stands up to plead, and he stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people. This would be the men in a position of leadership and his princes, again men. You've eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. You've used your positions not to serve the nation or make life better for people, but you're using your positions to rip people off and to make yourself rich. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord of hosts? And so he pronounces his woe upon how the men of Judah and Jerusalem were conducting themselves. It's interesting. He differentiates between the sexes even in all of this. And then in verse 16, he then pronounces his woe upon the women of Jerusalem and the judgment that he would pour out uh, upon the pride of Jerusalem's women. And so the women, the wives of these men, they had followed their husbands, followed the leadership of the men of the nation into apostasy, into unrighteousness, into arrogance, and into pride, and they were going to be judged as well. I happen to believe that women are the more noble sex. But what do I know? I mean, I still open the door for my wife. Sexist. Pig. But I still believe it, maybe because I know men so well, or I know myself so well. But I think it's interesting that he divides here and he speaks to the men and he clobbers them. And we need to be clobbered when we're doing what these folks are doing. But then he speaks to the women and he kind of puts them both in their own room and he talks to them. And it's important, I think, for women to realize. I mean, women are so, you know, in the Western world and we want to be like men and we want all of the rights and all. And there's a lot to be said about all of that. But you don't want to be like men. The two roles, the two sexes, they're, they're not competitive with one another. They're complementary. We are different and we're supposed to be different. And when you have a nation where the men have completely dropped the ball and they are living these terrible lives and making decisions that are leading people into bondage, taking advantage of the poor, oppressing the poor. It's so important that women do not follow men into that place. Women can save a nation. Women can... As a whole, this is the power. This is, there's a difference, there's a separation between the sexes, how they're viewed. And if a, women will step back and say, we won't go there. We won't follow you there. We don't get that. We're made of something different, made of something better. Maybe it's because babies come out of us. Maybe because we've given birth to the generation that you're about to destroy. Whatever it is within a woman, but there needs to be that stepping back and saying, we won't go there. We will stand. And when a women, women will stand as a whole and say as a group, as mothers, as wives, 
We won't follow our husbands. We won't follow the men of this culture into their sin when they're leading the whole nation into sin. We will step back and we will be a force for righteousness in this nation if the men will not be. And it's important to do that. And it's important to know that God puts an authority. There's something special on your lives by virtue of the fact that you are the mothers of every generation. Life stops without women. And there's something about how God has made you as well that's powerful. But unfortunately, the women of Jerusalem, they followed the men right into all of it. And so he begins his rebuke by laying out their characteristics. He says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they're proud, and they walk with their outstretched necks. There's nothing wrong with good posture, but this is talking about being proud and making sure everybody in the room knows it, or in the mall, or in the supermarket, or in the wherever. They walk with outstretched necks and with wanton eyes. They're seductive and immoral, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. And so they're using their beauty to tempt people into uh, uh, wanting them and desiring for them for the sake of their own egos. And, of course, this is, these are always the marks, as he lays out in verse 16 here, these are always the marks of ungodliness in women. These are the marks of a lack of spirituality in a woman and in a generation or a nation of women. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. And in like manner also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. You can be beautiful and modest. You're more beautiful when you're modest. With propriety and moderation. And not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. These aren't the things to be the marks of true beauty in a woman. But that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works, a godly life. It needs to be said, I think. That's the mark of greatness within the sex, greatness within women. And that these are the marks of women who want to make a difference for God within uh, a nation. And God then speaks of how he was going to judge them as a result of their wickedness and their pride. He said, therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion. And how, what's he talking about, giving them a scab on their head? Their heads, when the, ultimately the Babylonians would uh, conquer Jerusalem, they would shave the heads of all of the women. And they didn't, like, make sure that they were careful about how they conducted their job. So they take these big gouges of flesh out of their heads as they're just taking out these shears and cutting off their hair. And the result would be scabs. And the Lord will uncover their secret parts. And in that day, the Lord will take away the finery and look at the finery, the the jingling anklets, the scarves and the crescents, the pendants and the bracelets, the jewelry and the veils, 
the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, the rings, the nose rings, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans. Somebody says, oh, good, I don't have a turban. And the robes. And God says, I'm going to take all of that uh, away from you. All of these sources of pride going to remove all of their uh, adornments. And so here's this picture of they're proud and self-consumed here and all of this. So well, the whole nation is in this significant danger. I mean, it's ready to go down the tubes. And the need was for the women to rise up and be who they should be in the Lord. And all they could think about was the clothes and the jewelry and the perfumes and all of this. And God's not being stereotypical here. This is exactly uh, a temptation for uh, men and women, but certainly for women. Not everyone succumbs to it, but look at the culture that we live in. Look at the commercials in the magazines and in the TV and look at how absorbed everyone is with the next thing the Kardashians are going to do or whoever. And I don't even know who a Kardashian is. I don't know that I've ever seen a picture of one. All I know is I can't escape the name. I'll need a new body and a new heaven and a new earth to never think about the Kardashians again. But there's the same tendency, and especially in the Western culture, in, in, uh, in all of this. And the Lord says how he would judge this, and so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there shall be a stench. No more perfumes. When you're a slave and you're not allowed to bathe, you'll carry a different scent. Instead of a sash, a beautiful sash that you pick from one of 50 in your closet, you'll have a rope for a belt. And instead of well-set hair, baldness, instead of a rich robe, the girding of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. And when they would take the women captive in those days, they would brand them just like an animal. He says, you're going to lose all uh, of these uh, these things. It's all going to be turned around, and it can happen so fast. Your men will fall by the sword, and your mighty men in war. There's going to be, uh, there are not going to be any more men to seduce. They're going to be wiped out in battle. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit on the ground. And in that day, seven women will lay hold of one man. He's going to look like Barney Fife. It's all that's going to be left, and yet he's going to have the choice of seven women, all of them begging that he'll marry them so that he can, they can have their shame taken away, their reproach. So they can say, I'm a married woman and raise up a child. And they even give the offer to him. Listen, we don't even want you to support us. You don't have to buy us food. You don't have to buy us clothing. We'll eat our own food and we'll wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name. Only marry us to take away our reproach. And then in verse 2, wonderfully... Uh, God takes and, uh, and Isaiah jumps into better times again into the kingdom age when Jesus is going to rule on the earth from Jerusalem. In that day, the branch of the Lord, which is a reference to Messiah, to Jesus, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And we remember that probably most of the survivors of the great tribulation who uh, will not take the mark of the beast. They'll flee the Antichrist. They will 
uh, survived to, to see Jesus' second coming. Many of them, if not most of them, uh, will be Jews. And so here they will have escaped the great tribulation. They will then move into the kingdom age. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Jerusalem will be holy again. It will be filled with holy people. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. And when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. And for over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. And so uh, during that thousand-year reign of Christ, Jerusalem is uh, going to enjoy the Lord's fullness of his presence, his protection, as it talks about here, also his peace. So all of the answers to man's problems are going to be solved in the second coming uh, of Christ when he establishes his reign upon the earth. In chapter 5, the, Isaiah then, uh, God speaks to the uh, children of Israel by way of a parable. And this parable is a, a rebuke to uh, Judah and to uh, Jerusalem. And this parable is in the form of the parable of a vineyard. And, of course, they were very familiar with parables and uh, uh, prophets communicating through parables. Jesus made parables uh, popular like nobody else in the Bible in terms of his use of parables. And uh, so he gives this parable and he uses imagery that they were very, very familiar with. And that was a parable of a vineyard. And so uh, the vineyard uh, becomes useless to God. That's what Judah was to him. And so he uh, speaks this parable. Now let me sing to my well-beloved. This is Isaiah speaking to the Lord. So this parable is in the form of a song that he sings, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So we see the kind of relationship that Isaiah has with the Lord. He loves the Lord. They have a very intimate, beautiful uh, relationship. And so he uh, sings this parable to the Lord. And then here is the parable. My beloved, speaking of the Lord, has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared out all of its stones. And if you've ever been to Israel, there's a lot of stones that need to be pulled out in order for the soil to be made productive. He then planted it with the choicest uh, vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good fruit, but it brought forth wild grapes, grapes that were sour, grapes that were, uh, were uh, bitter and inedible. So God takes and he speaks to in this parable and he speaks of a vineyard here that has been provided with everything that's necessary in order for it to be productive. And uh, every imaginable advantage has been uh, supplied to it in order to produce uh, good grapes. And you notice the advantages. It was located on a very fruitful hill, verse 1. So it's perfectly located just so it's in the right place where the sun comes and hits it just right to produce just the right grapes, perfectly located. 
fertile soil, all of the stones are removed. God chose the choicest stock, the choicest vines to then plant within that vineyard. He provided protection, a water watchtower there, even a wine press for the uh, harvest and for the crush. In other words, nothing has been spared. Everything has been provided uh, necessary for that to be a productive uh, vineyard. And what the owner of the vineyard got out of it was wild grapes. And that's what Judah was uh, to the Lord. Wild grapes, just kind of a sour and edible, bitter taste in his mouth. We talk about that. That experience of that person or that situation leaves a bitter taste in my mouth. And Judah was leaving a bitter taste in God's mouth uh, because of their sin. And then God gives the interpretation for the parable. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... So uh, Jerusalem is the vineyard, and the men of Judah, they are the vines. Judge, he said, please, between me and my vineyard. He said, you listen to the parable that I've given here. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? And why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth bad grapes? So he speaks to the leaders of the nation, the whole nation as a whole. He said, what more could I do? I've blessed you in every way. I gave you the choicest hill, the choicest vines. I gave you a watchtower protection. I gave you a wine, everything that you needed. I've blessed the whole nation the prosperity that you have, the material things that you have. I've blessed you with a Bible. I've blessed you with a godly heritage and the miracles that you've received, the heritage that you have. Anywhere that they wanted to look, God had so blessed Judah. And I love what he says there to him. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? What more? How else? How What blessing have you lacked? What else could I give you beyond what I've already given you? And there's silence. There's nothing that they could say. God had blessed them so abundantly. I'll tell you, I bear God witness that if I were ever to be dumb enough to walk away from the Lord or to backslide, and I am stupid enough, but God is stronger than my stupidity, That if I ever did, the Lord would be able to knock on the door of my heart wherever I slowed down enough to let him speak to me. And he could speak to my heart and say, what more could I have done for you? How much more could I have blessed your life than how I did bless your life? And you think about how blessed we are as Christians in Christ Jesus. The list that is put in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. All that we have, all that we are in Christ Jesus. And to walk away from that would be to walk away and be confronted by God one day and say, Lord, there's nothing I lacked. You blessed me so much. And I walked away in the face of that blessing. I'm not advocating walking away from the Lord only to say that related to our own lives, just to stop and think about how richly He has blessed us. And He is the the vine and we are the branches. 
And that's New Testament imagery. The idea is that we would abide in him and bring forth uh, fruit and much fruit. So New Testament applications related to this. God has given us everything that's necessary to live a life that brings pleasure to him. And now please let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. He said, this is, if this is the way what I'm going to get out of it after all that I've put into it, he said, this is what I'll do with it. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house uh, of uh, Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plants. So he shows them what position, what place they had in the parable itself. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. In other words, people who were being oppressed and crying out to God for help in their uh, distress. And so God said, all right, you want to use my blessings to walk away from me, to poke me in the eye, to disrespect me, and to break my heart. He said, I know what to do in that situation. I will simply remove my blessings so that you can remember what it was like before you experienced them. As God is my witness, I don't know what I would do if God removed his blessings from my life. And I'm not talking about having a pot that can heat hot water in my house. I'm not talking about a material thing. The spiritual blessings of peace and joy, knowing that I'm right with God knowing what right and wrong is and that to do right is to do good to my neighbor and to do wrong is to harm my neighbor. These kinds of things that make us rich that we don't even think about. You think about that. What, I, what you and I would be reduced to if God removed from our lives all that we have and who we are in Christ Jesus, even in a measure, I'll tell you, it would make a waste of my life just as God was going to make a waste of Judah in Jerusalem. In verse 8, he applies the parable by speaking to uh, Judah of the uh, bitter grapes that they had brought forth rather than good fruit of obedience to God and blessing God with that. And he pronounces six woes upon them, six sins that they were uh, engaged in um, and uh, that were uh, characterizing uh, their lives and were ruining them and making them spiritually fruitless. He said, Woe to those who join house to house. And they add field to field till there's no place where they may dwell in the land, in the, where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath and a homer of seed shall produce one ephah. So his first woe, and the word woe means warning. I'm going to judge this. And the first woe is against the greed that was in the land. 
and greedy landowners. Their violation of the law of Moses. And God had commanded in the law of Moses that the land that was given to the various tribes and to the various families, that if a person came on hardship in their life and of necessity they had to sell their land to somebody else in order to gain money for a time, that always a maybe more better situated family member, a kinsman redeemer, would be able to come in and buy back the land so it wouldn't be lost by the family. And then always on the 50th year of the history, in the history of Israel, it was known as the year of Jubilee, that no matter if you had sold your land to somebody because you'd fallen on unfortunate circumstances, on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all land would revert back to their original owners, except for uh, houses that were located on a city wall. That was a permanent transaction. And what God was trying to avoid was having all of the wealth of the nation of Israel in terms of its land come into the hands of a comparative few because of the unique circumstances of that time in history where uh, maybe uh, several people would have enough money to buy up all of Jerusalem. I was reading... I probably mentioned it a few weeks ago, but was reading in some useless <laughs> newspaper. But it talked about the wealth of Bill Gates. And they said that Bill Gates could um, buy the entire uh, city of Boston, every building in it, every home in it, and still be left with $100 million. You know, just a little chump change just to get you by, you know, till the rapture or something. So... But there is this, these times in history, we're seeing it very much in our time, where the rich are getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And some of it has to do with the financial policies that are going on that allow people that no money to make vast amount of money while everybody else is working their fingers to the bone to try and keep food on the table. And that will be problems for this country if um, that unfairness uh, occurs. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't be able to make money and make a lot of money. And, uh, but the, da- the deck should not be stacked against one group and for another group where only one kind of person in one position is able to uh, take advantage of a particular window of opportunity within a country. And God knew that kind of thing would happen and that the whole city of Jerusalem or the whole land of Israel could end up being owned by a comparative few. And so he forbade that in the law and they were violating that law, disregarding it, and they were buying up all of the land around them to have these greatest states, not returning the land on the year of Jubilee, and God says, listen, I'm going to take and come in and ultimately I'm going to destroy all of these these houses. He's going to make sure that they ultimately lost everything that they uh, compromised his word to gain. The second woe in verse 11 is on those who rise early in the morning. So that's a musician's dream, that verse uh, right there. They love that first 
part, but the verse doesn't stop there. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. So a condemnation of drunkenness. And so they wake up early in order to drink. First thing they got to do is have a drink. Who continue then drinking until night, till wine inflames them. And then they begin to party. So the condemnation not only of drunkenness but partying. And the harp and the strings, the tambourine, the flute, the wine uh, and wine are in their feast. They do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. And so here they are. The miss of a life with God. Uh, for drunkenness and for partying. And so um, he condemns that, that characterized the nation at that time. Though the churches were full. The churches were full. The temple was full at that time. All the sacrifices were being offered. This is why God said, I don't do it for me. I don't want to see, don't offer me. A, it, the, in, the great gap that exists between what you are away from the temple and what you are at the temple. He said, this, so this is what he was talking about. And he said, therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their fashionable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, that is hell, has enlarged itself. It's interesting that Sheol or the waiting place for the white throne judgment, it enlarged itself. It's constantly in a um, you know, remodeling project to accommodate uh, the crowd that is uh, uh, heading there on a daily basis and opened its mouth beyond measure, their glory and their multitude uh, and their pomp. And he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Righteousness wins. And uh, then the lambs will feed in their pasture. And the waste places of the fat One's strangers shall eat. And then his third woe here in verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity, iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart uh, rope. And so here is, he's talking about a complete abandonment uh, to uh, sin. And in their midst of their sin and all of their wicked, they then say about God, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel come near and uh, draw near and come that we may know it. Now, it may mean that what they're saying is they're seeing the problems that they're having. Assyria is very, very powerful. It is ascending in power at this time. They know that Assyria is ultimately going to attempt to invade uh, Judah. So they see the instability of the world around them. They recognize their own unrighteousness, and, and eat, but they want to continue to live their wicked life. And then when God uh, doesn't step in and supernaturally protect them from Assyria, they say, well, why doesn't God step up and protect us? Why isn't he faithful to his promises, not realizing that um, it was their sin that uh, kept him from being able to do that. Or it may very well be when they say in verse 19, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. They may just be saying to God, they're so engaged in their sin and all they just say to God and Isaiah and his messages of woe and warnings concerning judgment, just saying to God, well, let him bring it on. 
Stop talking about all the judgment. If he's going to judge, then let him judge. Say, wow. And uh, I know people like that. They're that arrogant toward the Lord. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light. They redefine morality, right and wrong who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so they change God's standards of, of right and wrong. God's definitions of right and wrong, they can't be improved upon. So why do men change them? To justify sin, to protect sin. And when you turn God's definitions of right and wrong and light and dark on their head, And then you not only turn them on their head, but you say the exact opposite is the true truth about right and wrong and light and darkness. Now you live in a nation that's headed for judgment. Now you're headed to a nation that must ultimately collapse because no nation has ever been able to violate those definitions and without being massively humbled, and in some cases, uh, failing even uh, to survive. So you look at the country that we live in. I mean, look at how uh, on the defensive uh, Christians are in our nation. And why are we on the defensive? Because we hold to God's definitions of right and wrong, and good and bad, and light and dark. And the nation that we live in, holds opposite convictions concerning right and wrong. And because they want to protect their sin and accommodate their sin, they have to not only eliminate God from the public square, which they've been largely successful in doing, but now little did we realize that we were the second item on the menu, and now they've got to silence us and attack us. And and so... We are wrong, and Planned Parenthood is, is uh, right. We're wrong as Christians, and homosexual marriage is right. We're wrong, and sexual immorality is right. And we're wrong about swearing and drunkenness and partying. Uh, all of those things are right. So it's all been turned upside down. But again, there's no future in redefining uh, God's definitions, and God pronounced woe upon it. The only thing worse, at least we live in a world where it's like pagans are doing it. But here, these were God's people who were doing that. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. He pronounces a woe upon and upon pride. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Uh, isn't that interesting? There are some people, I've known them, where, and I've worked with them, not here. <laughs> where their claim to fame, unless they got saved and repented, their, claim, their, their memorial service would be something like this. Man, could he drink. <laughs> wow! He drank two six-packs a night, though all the years I knew him. What a guy! I hope they have beer at the reception, you know. And, but for some people, that's their claim to fame. Man, he could hold the liquor. He could put it down. But it's not a return to a woe or a denunciation of drinking necessarily here. But the real 
uh, problem here and the real woe is against what he describes in verse 23. He says, well, again, in verse uh, 22, Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating uh, drink who justify uh, the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. In other words, they... Uh, the, the leaders of the country are, are drunk and, and given to wine and they've corrupted the whole uh, judicial system as a result. And therefore, here's the judgment that's going to result from uh, those woes. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and fire will devour stubble and the flame consumes the chaff and flame will consume chaff completely, So their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Though they went to temple and went to all of the feasts and sacrifices, therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. A great judgment, severe judgment coming upon them. But uh, God, is, his anger is still unsatisfied. He continues there in verse 25. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And he will lift up a banner to the nations from afar that surrounded Judah. He'll whistle to them to the end of the earth. He'll give them the okay signal. Come in and invade them and bring my judgment upon them. And surely they will come with speed, swiftly. No one shall be weary or stumble among this invading force. No one will slumber nor sleep, nor will their belt on their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. The roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey and that they may they will carry it away safely and no one will deliver in that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea and if one looks to the land behold darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened by the clouds and so uh, probably referring to assyria when they did invade uh, the southern kingdom of judah got right up to the city of jerusalem before god uh, pushed them back but ultimately this prophecy is fulfilled in the, by the Babylonian army. Then in chapter 6, we have this famous vision of uh, the uh, um, commissioning of Isaiah the prophet and the call of him officially into his office as a prophet. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, that's the date of the prophecy. That's the whole context and the circumstances of it. And King Uzziah ruled over Judah for 52 years. And he was only one of eight good kings that ruled over Israel and over Judah. David was numbered among them. And he brought tremendous prosperity to the land of Judah. People were just, nobody was worried about food. I mean, everything was taken care of. It was a very prosperous time materially. 
He built up their military, the defenses of Jerusalem. The country felt safe. God gave uh, Uzziah military victories against their enemies. And he was a deeply spiritual man. He cared about God. And he put godly men around him in order to influence him uh, for the Lord. And so he was a good king and he was a godly king. And by the time Isaiah here receives this vision from this Lord, this commissioning into his formally into his office as a, as a prophet, it occurs in the year that King Uzziah dies. And Uzziah, King Uzziah dies, and Uzziah is the only king that Isaiah has ever known. And so he's like Judah. All of them are filled with this great sense of loss uh, in their uh, life. For the first time in his lifetime, uh, the throne of uh, the kingdom of Judah is vacant. And what does the Lord do? The Lord then gives him a vision here, the greater vision of God and his throne. The great classical line related to uh, this particular uh, verse here, verse 1 in chapter 6, is that God then showed Isaiah the throne of behind the throne. There was a throne behind the reign of Uzziah. Uzziah's reign was a great reign and a prosperous reign and a godly reign because there was a greater throne behind it. But so often when there's the loss of a man or there's this great turmoil within the country that that kind of loss can produce, people forget about the throne that was behind the throne. And so God then shows Isaiah the throne that was behind uh, Uzziah's throne. And he gave here Isaiah a greater vision of the Lord than he'd ever had before. And here's the vision. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above his throne stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And as we mentioned this morning in the Bible study, every single thing about this vision that is given to Uzziah, everything about the Lord, and he's sitting, he's on a throne, he's high and lifted up, that is, he's above all else, the train of his robe filling the temple, and the angels crying out that the whole earth is full of his glory was to reinforce and to remind Isaiah of the fact of the sovereignty of God, that God is almighty and that he rules over all and he overrules all for his purposes and for his glory. And that was the thing that Isaiah needed to be reminded of. Yes, he's gone, but the work goes on. And my purposes for you now need to be launched forth at this strategic moment. And so that reminder that God still rules no matter how great the loss to us individually or to the nation. And then as these angels, these seraphim, seraphim means fiery ones, as they're uh, crying out to the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the idea is probably that they're repeating this over and over and over again. We see much the same thing in the book of Revelation. And this declaration, this bold, holy, heavenly 
proclamation of God's holiness and of His sovereignty and that He rules and that He wins and that He will always win. Heaven and these angels declare that with such force that the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. God took and He inhabited the praises of these angelic beings and the smoke represents the presence of God coming down upon this praise for his holiness and this praise for his greatness and for his sovereignty. Here he is, he gets the praise and the worship that he's deserving of and as always the case, he then inhabits that and makes his presence known. And Isaiah is there and sometimes people say, boy, I wish I could see the Lord. Have, uh, have a, um, a medical exam first. Because Isaiah sees this and he just gets Marty Feldmanizer like this big, you know. And he said when he saw the Lord in all of his glory, I mean, he's, he's just like us. He's, he's, being, he's in Jerusalem. He's in Judea. Right and wrong is being redefined. Sin is rampant all around. You know, you try to hold on to proper definitions of holiness and you try to live a holy life, but the culture fights against it. And you don't learn about it by the culture all around us. And then all of a sudden he sees just how holy God really is and how excited heaven is about the holiness of God and the power of God, even when God's people are not excited about those things on the earth and his reaction was woe is me for I am undone and the idea is I'm cooked I'm dead you're looking at a dead man I literally he's saying I am going to die on the spot I'm going to perish in the midst of this Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Now we don't know if this is the altar of incense or the brazen altar, the the place of where the... Uh, sin offerings and the peace offerings were offered. But it, it doesn't really matter because, again, that speaks of the holiness of God. Holiness is going to be applied to his lips. And so you look, here's the seraphim, one of the fiery ones. He needs, he is a fiery one. I mean, how holy is God? How, how hot is this coal when it, a fiery one has to use tongs to then carry the coal to apply it to Isaiah's lips. And so he took it and he came to Isaiah. And he touched my mouth, Isaiah said with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. God never makes us aware of our sin. Except that it is for the purpose that we will then confess it to him. And then allow him to cleanse it from our lives. God never shows us his holiness, his glory and says, I just wanted you to know what I'm like and you aren't like. 
He never shows us the greatness of our sin in our lives. And what Isaiah has here in his life in terms of this was the, if his mouth was defiled, this was the calling that was on his life. This was the worst case scenario for him, maybe different related to all of, you know, our lives individually. And yet God takes, he makes us aware of our sin. We confess that sin and then he is always eager to cleanse us of that that sin. And that was important for Isaiah to know experientially with God because he's going to go into Jerusalem and into Judah and he is going to declare this message of judgment is coming and people need to repent of their sins and he needed to know between him and God that if they would confess their sin and they would repent, would God really cleanse them? And God said, I'm going to let you know right from out of the gate that what I'm doing for you, I will do for anyone who will listen to your message and who will turn. And also I heard the voice of the Lord, he said, saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? A conversation within the Godhead. God is looking for a messenger. And then I said, here am I, send me. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And so this was the message that he would carry out um, to the nation uh, of Judah and to uh, Jerusalem, and uh, that would be the message that would be declared. And then God declared what the reaction of Judah would be, the people of Judah, to his message. God said in verse 10, Make the heart of this people dull. And their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. In other words, Isaiah, I'm calling you into a ministry where I'm going to have you deliver a message to my people and they are not going to listen to you. Your words are going to have almost no effect upon the nation as a whole, at all. And when God speaks this to Isaiah, Isaiah then, he's confused by this. He's startled by that. And so he said to the Lord, Lord, how long? How long am I going to deliver this message? And they're not going to turn. And the Lord answered and said, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, till the land is destroyed and the people are exiled. The houses are without a man and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God says, I want you to speak this message of judgment until the judgment comes. It's an interesting thing for God to call a person and say, I want you to call upon a nation to repent, but they're not going to listen to you by and large. A tenth will, a small remnant will. And I wonder in our own lives, in the Christian world is very much like uh, the pagan world lack of a better term, all around us, the world world, in that the definitions of success within the church and within Christianity 
mirror the definitions of success very much within the world. How does the world measure success? Money and people. How much money do you have? How many people do you employ? How many people are you over? That's how success is determined within the world. But it's the same kind of standard that infiltrates the church when we're not careful to where we view the success of a church or we view the success of our ministry based upon, as someone has very crassly put it, based upon nickels and noses. How much money does the church have? How much is the offering? How many people are coming to the church? And it's not just leaders within the church. It's very often in our own hearts, people, they will, Christians will gravitate to environments where there's lots of people and where there's these outward kind of um, uh, examples of success just like the world. Wow, there's a lot of people there and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of money and the place is, you know, ship-shape and sharp and, you know, ornate and all of these kind of things. And what happens is, is what happens when God calls somebody like an Isaiah to a ministry and says to them, because of the condition of the world where I'm planning you to serve me, you're going to spend your whole life ministering and nobody's going to listen to you. But he and Jeremiah are as successful as anyone who has ever served the Lord in human history. There is not one recorded convert in the 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry. Not one. And yet his name is gold in the kingdom of God. And what it means is this. If I understand my reading of the Bible and what it's going to be like in the last days, spiritually, morally, just the condition of the world, that more and more there's going to, there, there's going to come a generation of servants, whether we are that generation or not, where faithfulness to our service to the Lord is not going to result in a big church. And it's not going to result in a fancy church. And it's not going to result in all of the things that even Christians think mark a successful ministry. The great definition of success for that generation will be, I was faithful to what God had called me to do. As Jesus said, that proclaiming to such a servant, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. So why would God call Jeremiah or Isaiah here to take and deliver this message when virtually no one is going to listen? Why do we have to do that? In order to make the people responsible for the judgment when it did come. But he was to preach that message to everyone. Just like we're to preach the gospel to everyone. Not just to know. Well, we, I think there's a pretty good chance he'll come to know the Lord and you preach the gospel to them. Oh, that section of town, that neighborhood, that family, forget about it. It will never happen. So we start to do all these things within our mind. Now, we preach the gospel to everyone because we never know who is going to receive uh, that gospel and to receive that message. 
But there has to be the realization that when we preach the gospel, that when somebody rejects it and rejects it in spades, I mean virtually spits in our face in rejecting it, that something important has happened at that moment. And that is that person had a right to hear God's gospel and his message. And now they will be responsible for the judgment that they will one day face if they die in that state of rejection. Now, let me close by saying related to this, they say that on average in the United States of America, the last statistics that I've seen, is that the average American comes to put their faith in Christ, those who do, uh, on average, the seventh time they hear the gospel. So maybe while the guy's spitting on your shoes, while you're sharing that track with him, we don't give up on him because he'll then leave and head off somewhere to his granddaughter's birthday party and she'll come up and say, Grandpa, the Lord loves you. Would you like to receive Jesus into your heart? He can't very well spit on her. And something about that childlike faith and all of a sudden he accepts the Lord. So you never know who's going to receive, who isn't going to receive. My point is, is that we're called to be faithful. And we cannot define the success of our ministry based upon numbers. And he says in verse 13, but yet, most are going to reject you. But yet a tenth will be in it. And they're going to return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree and as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. And so the holy seed shall be its stump. And so here is grace and God speaking to Isaiah that, yes, this nation is going to be judged. They are going to go into captivity to the Babylonians, but they will return. This is not the end of them as a nation. God's grace. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to live a holy life to the degree that we have experienced it. Thank you that you're a holy God. We thank you again tonight for the privilege of knowing you of being able to embrace your definitions of right and wrong, to see clearly the insanity of the world around us and to walk separated from it, Lord. Not in arrogance or in pride, but how we love the safety, Lord, of your word. And we thank you tonight, those of us who know you. Thank you, Lord, for pulling us up out of the miry clay and setting our feet upon a rock. We thank you tonight for our, our salvation story and all that you did to warn and to woo, to bring us to you. And we're so thankful, Lord, for the life that we get to live, the joy of knowing you. And we close tonight by just saying again as we began in prayer, we bless you. We bless you, Lord. 
We bless you for how good you have been to each and every one of us. Thank you for this Christian life. Thank you, Lord. And we thank you in the name of the one who has made all of it possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.